One of the unintended consequences of convenience is complexity. In order to make things easier, to connect to more things, we must introduce complexity. There's no easy way around it. For example, a simple system that has only an on-off switch, that's not too convenient, right? Think of a mobile phone with just an on and off switch. If there were no volume control, all the mobile phones today would ring at the same tone at the same decimal level, and there would be no way to set the phone to vibrate during a meeting except by powering it off. Yet, by integrating granular controls such as volume, we've just made the mobile phone a lot more complex. And that's just one basic user interaction. Complex systems are composed of individual parts, and as those parts interact, errors can multiply. Only one needs to fail to permit a cybercriminal entry. In defeating feature fatigue, researchers from the University of Maryland presented participants in a controlled study with models of a new audio and video player that differed only in the number of features offered. Overwhelmingly, the participants chose the most full-featured gadget as the one that they would most like to own. Capability has a stronger effect on consumers than usability. A second study presented participants with a list of 25 features on a new audio or video player. Here the authors found that consumer was like the proverbial kid in a toy store, choosing more features rather than fewer. This time, however, the participants had to pay a usability penalty for each feature chosen. Even so, the participants chose 19.6 features on average. When the product arrived, however, the participants were not quite as satisfied with the result. Put simply, the authors concluded, what looks attractive in prospect does not look good in practice. Consumers often become frustrated and dissatisfied with the very cornucopia of features that they originally desired and chose. For most of us, that familiar beep-beep as we walk away from a parking garage is enough to assure that our car has been both locked and is safe. Often, the tiny flashing light on the dashboard also alerts would-be criminals that the car is protected by the latest form of anti-theft security. And for the most part, this is true. A sophisticated set of encryption and electronics is at work inside the vehicle. However, don't be surprised to find your state-of-the-art anti-theft protected vehicle stolen someday. And in a moment, we'll see how complex technology, more features, doesn't necessarily raise the barrier for entry for cybercriminals. Sometimes it does the exact opposite. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm challenging the notion of convenience by using our cars as an example. Just because it has all the bells and whistles doesn't mean it's secure. In my book from 2011, When Gadgets Betray Us, I profiled a young Czech-born streetwise car thief, an unlikely example of a high-tech criminal. He's been stealing cars since the age of 11, 
Czech officials attribute most of the 51,000 thefts per year in that country to thieves who work in teams stealing cars, forging registrations, and stripping parts. In other words, organized crime. The person I profiled, he worked by himself. Quote, you leave your car, lock it, and walk around it toward your house. That's how long I need to take it, he told the Prague Post. As more and more automotive manufacturers start incorporating computer technology into BMWs, Mercedes, Ferraris, and Porsches, this streetwise criminal realized he could defeat the manufacturer's anti-theft software with his own. Lacking any formal computer training, he uses internet-provided software. 20 years ago, this criminal, all he needed was a pair of scissors to steal any Italian sports car he wanted. Today, he uses a laptop. Gangs often search for and steal a particular high-end make and model of car. By specializing, it's possible for these gangs to guess through sheer trial and error the electronic anti-theft codes found in the keyless entry fobs. Another possibility, one that's more likely, is that they already know the vendor's proprietary code algorithm because it was stolen or purchased or provided by an insider or someone within the car dealership. Codes used by these anti-theft systems do not make us more secure. They make us complacent. We trust in them so much that we forget the common sense lessons, such as parking in a well-lighted spot, hiding valuables, or using auxiliary locking mechanisms on the wheel or the brake. We assume the high-tech solution is somehow better than past experience, and we have become careless with our cars and our sense of what's secure. So how hard is it to use a laptop to steal a new car? First, we need to understand what's happening when we unlock the door. Cars today are using remote keyless fobs. In other words, you don't insert a key, you push a button, and the resulting radio signal either locks or unlocks the doors. And in some models, it opens the hatch or the trunk as well. Using a tiny battery, the fob can broadcast a coded signal up to 100 feet in order to make contact with the car, generating that beep beep and the flash of headlights that audibly and visibly identifies your car in a crowded parking lot. The fob and the car wirelessly exchange a series of nanosecond challenges and responses. And if the car receives the expected code, it performs the expected function. For added security, these codes are rolling. Both keyless fob and the car use the same pseudo-random number generator followed by a proprietary algorithm. When you lock or open your car door, both the car and the fob store into memory the next code. If you hit your key fob while you're away from the car, the car and the fob will fall out of sync. The car receiver solves this by accepting any of the next 256 possible codes. It's important to note that in this particular case, the key fob is only controlling entry into the vehicle. Once you're inside, a second anti-theft technology, a static vehicle immobilizer chip embedded in the plastic base of the key or the fob becomes important. Immobilizers in the United States have been cited for a sharp decrease in auto thefts in recent years. Once the chip is in the car and validated, the immobilizer system unlocks the rest of the electronic systems in the car. Older cars use what's called fixed keys, one code per vehicle, while cars today randomly generate and store new immobilizer codes after each use. Today, immobilizer systems are no longer separate components of the car, but bundled within the electronic subsystems. Even without validation of the immobilizer chip, a car can be driven a short distance without locking up. A valet key, often provided by the dealer as a third key, lacks an immobilizer chip. The valet key exists to allow a valet to park the car a short distance away. 
not drive it on the freeway. Auto manufacturers and insurers insist that these new, purely keyless electronic technologies are equal to, if not better than, older mechanisms and entirely invincible to theft. World-famous soccer star David Beckham might argue otherwise. Beckham holds the distinction of having not one, but two very high-tech keyless BMWs stolen off the streets of Madrid, Spain. One theft occurred in broad daylight. Before he signed with the LA Galaxy soccer team, Beckham had played for many years with Manchester United in the United Kingdom, then Real Madrid in Spain. In living around the world, Beckham has taken his cars with him. Concerned for his family's safety, however, Beckham bought the family two armor-plated vehicles while living in Madrid. One was a Range Rover, a V8, Vogue, with bulletproof glass. The other was a keyless BMW X5 SUV. As long as Beckham had the original key fob on his person, he needed only to lift the door handle to unlock the door. The door then queried the key fob in his pocket to arm and disarm the security system, open the hatch, make minute adjustments to the seat positions, or allow the driver, once inside, to press a button to start the car. The convenience of operating a car without fumbling for, your, for keys is a godsend to any parent with small children in tow. Even for adults without kids, the ability to walk up, get inside, tap the brake, and simply touch a button to start the engine is pretty cool. But now we've gone from having two separate encrypted chips, the digital signal transponder and the ignition immobilizer, to just one. From a security perspective, that's not so good. Madrid, like Prague, is a European hotbed for car theft, with an average of 50 luxury vehicles stolen every day. In November 2005, when Beckham's first BMW X5 was stolen, an associate of Beckham's had parked the vehicle outside the Grand Hotel where he was staying. The associate later told authorities that he forgot to engage the extensive anti-theft security system. No matter the high-tech solution, the security doesn't work if you forget to engage it. The car, missing for more than a year, reportedly showed up in Macedonia along the border with Albania. Authorities in Spain speculate that Beckham's X5, which seats up to seven, was stolen by professional car thieves, perhaps without their knowing whom it had belonged, and used it for human smuggling in and out of various European countries. By then, Beckham had obtained another X5. One afternoon in the spring of 2006, while driving in suburban Madrid with his boys, Beckham stopped at mall for lunch. Perhaps he thought that lightning would not strike twice, or that one would be bold enough to steal his car from a crowded shopping mall parking garage. Upon returning from lunch, however, the soccer star discovered that thieves had once again stolen his latest vehicle. In 2015, Sammy Kankar debuted at DEFCON an attack he called a roll jam attack. The idea is that when you push the unlock button on a key fob, it sends out a modulated radio signal that gets picked up by a receiver in the car. If the modulated code matches the cars, then the door will unlock. Here's the roll jam part. A hacker places a wallet-sized device somewhere on the targeted car, and then when the owner tries to unlock the vehicle by pressing the unlock button, 
on their remote, the device jams that signal so that the vehicle doesn't hear it and at the same time intercepts that same code. When the owner of the car then tries to use the key remote a second time to unlock the vehicle, the device jams the signal and steals the second code, but at the same time sends that very first code to the car, allowing the door to open. Now the hacker has a unique code in his back pocket that can be used at a later time because the car never really heard that second signal. The catch was that he was blocking the, the frequency and was like collecting um, rolling like authorization responses in a way and he could later on use in order to unlock the car when the owner was not around. Here's Martin Herfert from episode 48 of The Hacker Mind. He talked about how Tesla was moving away from using a key fob and simply using one's mobile phone. Of course, there are problems with this method as well. So I thought about that. I really liked the idea, but overall, the, the way that Tesla is using the technology would, would make it really hard or it's not even the same scheme, so it could not be easily replicated that way. But of course, recording uh, authorization responses from the car was something that I included in the talk. It's a little more complicated because there's more advanced cryptography at work. But um, yeah, maybe it's along the same lines. Just before Kansek West, a British security group, NCC, announced a Bluetooth BLE vulnerability that was very similar to what Martin was going to talk about. NCC warned that the Tesla Model 3 and Model Y employ Bluetooth low-energy-based passive entry key systems, and this could allow a link layer relay attack conclusively that defeats existing applications of proximity authentication. NCC, by forwarding the data from a baseband to the link layer, the hack gets past known relay attack protections, including encrypted BLE communications, because it circumvents the upper layers of the Bluetooth stack and the need to decrypt that. This is very similar to what Martin was going to present. So there's the replay attack, and then there's the relay attack. One, you're simply capturing it, as with Sammy Kankar's device, and replaying it at a later time and date. The other, you're actively being a man in the middle, and you're relaying the data from one person to another. So what uh, the video that we published, that shows the relay attack. So yeah. we, we just pass on the messages that we receive from the phone key and just give that, feed it into the Tesla. And Tesla doesn't uh, care so much and talks back to that feeding device, which then transfers all the messages back to the phone. So that's a relay attack. The replay attack, that means that a pre-recorded message is just sent at a different time to the vehicle and would work in, in ways of unlocking it and, and so on. So I haven't tried that actively. But uh, that was one of the observations I had during the talk because when, when I was programming or like developing the Tesla key app, I had a, a lot of uh, messages going back and forth. And um, I, that was just one observation that this token, which is used for authentication requests. So when, once you approached your car and you, you uh, 
tap the door handle. This is a signal to the car that somebody wants to enter the car and it would then ask for authorization, would find out, well, is there a, a phone key in the area? Usually when the phone key sees the car, it's connecting and says, here, I'm key with that, that and that ID, uh, just for you to know, dear car. And the car then knows, all right, so this is uh, the right uh, key material that this phone has to use in order to get authorized. But the key by itself is not enough. There's also a challenge. It's, it's, a, in, uh, it's called a token in that context. And this token changes over time and is sent together with that authorization request to the phone key. The phone key then understands that message and encrypts it back to the sender, to the vehicle, with that secret key uh, the car and the phone have and that challenge token. And only then the car would unlock. So the challenge token or the token that Tesla uses for that should change per request, I'd say. So it doesn't, even, even better or even worse, <laughs> it doesn't change on a daily basis so much. So I, you know, I, I did that temporal tool and what that does, it enumerates all the keys that are whitelisted in a car. So you could ask the car, so how many keys are in use in your database? The car would answer and would tell the, the other device that is questioning all the details about the crypto counter, the session token. And that's done because it could be that the phone key gets out of sync for some reason and needs a way to resync. And that by itself is not a, not a threat. But I saw that the crypto counter, would, that, that was not the issue, but the token used for the challenges did not change. And even after using that token a few times for authentication responses, so like positive, at least at that point, the car should go ahead and say, all right, I, do an, I make a new token so that the next time the, the phone key has to respond differently. So and in theory, or very practical theory, this token if it's not changing, enables attackers to record these um, responses of a phone key to authorization requests. I do not know how long this time frame is, but from observation, it's a few hours maybe. So again, let's take a step back a moment. I have a key fob that lets me in and out of my car, but it's not a Tesla. If I had a Tesla, I would have an app instead of a key fob. And it's that app that we're talking about that allows you to open the doors and start your engine. Right. So the app is replacing the key fob. And that's a very convenient thing because, after all, it's one piece less to carry around. So it's a synergy, convergence, however you want to call it. It's, I like it. And it's uh, an application on the phone that is making use of the Bluetooth low energy stack in order to send 
encrypt, encrypted and not encrypted messages to the car interface based on that protocol, which is called VCSEC. Aha. So VCSEC, that sounds very promising, particularly if you're a researcher trying to figure all this out. So what is VCSEC? VCSEC, yeah. I was wrong in the, in the first assumption that this is uh, vehicle control secure or security or something related to security. Uh, VCSEC, I found out later, is uh, vehicle control secondary. And yeah, uh, makes a lot of sense, right? Because of course it has to do with security in a way, but it's not its main purpose. So what is the purpose of this vehicle control secondary in Teslas? started looking into that when I was finding out about that message format. So I was able to be in the middle when the car talks to the phone and vice versa. So I was receiving these messages, which I was in the first sight not really able to make sense of them. Uh, I figured quickly that like the first two bytes were length related. So it would just tell the recipient of the message how many bytes are going to follow and but the rest was like a miracle to me <laughs> first but then i found a tool it's called pbtk and i found out about protobuf which is a binary version of json json is a textual human readable format for data and uh, protobuf has initially be developed by Google uh, is shrinking that down by making uh, a binary format from it. So text elements get replaced by numbers, really small, 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 really good fit for the Bluetooth low energy technology because it's limited bandwidth there. And I found out that it's really easy to extract the VCSEC proto file, which is exactly that vocabulary for that proto buff implementation. And having that and having the proto C tool enabled me to translate or to deserialize all these messages I was receiving back to text format, which was really handy, right? Because then it made, made a lot of sense <laughs> what, what's going on there, right? Mm -hmm. And with version or app version four, they switched it and uh, the PBTK tool stopped working for me. So the PBTK tool is like on GitHub and I was also asking maybe they could extend that to Square or Square Wire. So it's, it's a, another implementation for the same kind of thing. So it's compatible with each, with each other. But um, different manufacturer, different annotations in the class files. That means uh, I had to hack a script which is not as good as uh, the PBTK tool. I just grabbed all the class files for certain annotations and scribbled them out. And out comes a proto file, which is more or less to the original. Not the same, though, but uh, works for me. <laughs> and is also on, in the GitHub repository now for people to play with that. And um, that that's a, the first step you need to do if you're talking VCSEC or you want to understand VCSEC, you have to have that vocabulary. Having that, you can decode or deserialize the messages. And then a little bit of guesswork has to 
be used as well or guesswork that is backed on the obfuscated code you have, right? So for example, it took me a while to figure out when there is an authorization request, how would you answer to that? There is something which is encrypted, which is like the black box of the message. You would see it's crypto counter such and such, signature such and such. And you know, right, it has to do with that encryption that I know how it works. But still, what's inside that encrypted bit? That's hard to find out. And you could look in the code and it's really hard and to, to trace back where the information comes from that is going into that uh, crypto uh, text. But finally, also with guessing, there's been uh, this VCSEC message type, it's called authorization response. Like in retrospect, easy, right? <laughs> but uh, also there, there's fields that I had to guess because I never saw an original message because an original message would only be available from the phone, right? And the phone, I did not succeed extracting the keys from the phone because I'm not good at that. I think it's very doable and I had, I had a discussion yesterday as well. So I think uh, uh, dynamic instrumentation with Frida for the people who know about that could work there. And that's also what I tried already, but I did not find the right places. To, you would set a hook. A hook means that whenever a certain function is called, you are able by dynamic instrumentation to tell what this function is going to return or you can see what it's going to return. And once there is a function like get secret or something along these lines, you would hook that and get the secret key, which is somewhere buried in the device so it's not not just lying there it's, it's using device encryption and it's pretty good protected so we've been hacking the fob and the app to gain access to the car but what about direct access to the car before we can start to hack a car, we need to understand how a car works. With the exception of a Tesla, perhaps, not many are designed as a computer system on wheels. Rather, cars today consist of dozens of individual computers, actually embedded systems or microcontrollers that need to communicate and coordinate with each other almost instantaneously. So you don't have one computer, you actually have many throughout the vehicle. Yes, you'll have individual controllers. Um, one might be attributed to the, like, the brake and the traction control system. It like handles all of them at the same time. That's Robert Liel, my car hacking instructor at Black Hat. He's from canbushack.com, and he's also the founder of the annual car hacking village at DEF CON. And because it's connected to the braking system, it doesn't necessarily apply the brakes, um, but it monitors the braking system if there's any failures. Or you might have one that's connected to the engine, it's managing the engine. So if the engine needs to fire a particular cylinder, it manages that, it manages the fuel, the air-fuel ratio, etc. So, These individual microcontrollers are called electronic control units, or ECUs. That's correct, electronic control units, yep. The first ECUs resulted from actions taken in the 1960s and 70s by California's Air Resources Board. Today, ECUs are given specific tasks, such as controlling 
anti-lock brakes, the lights, the volume of the multimedia player, warning signals, and the flow of fuel to the engine. Features that we consider convenient require ECUs to communicate with one or more other systems, and the controller area network gives the car's ECUs the ability to communicate with each other. It just depends on what the goal is of the manufacturer, uh, if that's the best way to describe it. So some cars, their goal is to sell them really low cost, right? So they'll only put a few of these controllers in there to save on cost because they're kind of expensive. Whereas some manufacturers are going for features, not necessarily cost. So the more features, the more controllers you'll typically have because the controllers kind of manage the features that are in the vehicle. Yeah. Some of these microcontroller ECUs are binary. They're either on or they're off. Although some have gotten to be pretty sophisticated over time. Yeah, so I mean, there that's changing ever so slightly. Um, you know, with modern vehicles, they're they're becoming a, they're actually becoming like they're running Ubuntu, they're running um, Android operating system. Um, so so some controllers are very basic. You know, the engine controller, its job is really simple. Fire some cylinders. It just it does this a lot of simple things, just hundreds and hundreds of simple things. Whereas you think about, um, you know, on a Tesla, maybe your center display might have to display the map and have some apps loading. You got your um, you got uh, Spotify running. You know, all of those other things. So so those are more computers. What we're used to the standard interface. So it just depends on what it's again the goal of that particular controller. What unites these microcontrollers is not an operating system. Rather, it's a bus. What's that? A bus is a communication system that transfers data between components. It does so by sending that data to all the ECUs at once. And if it's meant for the brakes, then that ECU will respond. All the others will listen for the next packet. It might be for them. I guess, you know, it's funny. Yesterday I was explaining this. I have ten year, two 10-year-old twins. I was explaining this exact question to them. So I'll pretend like I'm explaining it to two 10-year-old twins because I know how to do this now. Um, a CAN bus is a controller area network and essentially links controllers, which are ostensibly computers that are in the vehicle, um, to each other. So they can all talk at the same time. But it the, the unique part is it's a bus. So when one controller sends a message, because it's a bus topology of a network, all of the messages are received simultaneously by all of the other nodes, which gives it a unique, some unique features that maybe you won't see in like an Ethernet style typical network. Ethernet is a wired network. You're probably familiar with an Ethernet in an office network computing system. Here too, it is designed to route large amounts of data quickly. So some vehicles are starting to add... Um, and, and have been for a little while, but uh, it's becoming more of a thing. Uh, they're adding Ethernet, but not your typical Ethernet, your four-wire, two-pair, or, or, or three-pair Ethernet. Um, you're getting uh, a, a single-pair, so two-wire Ethernet. Apart from the brakes and lights and such that are needed to operate the car, manufacturers have been investing more and more in interesting dashboards which require web browsers which allow for apps to be downloaded and run from the internet. They're using it to transfer data like uh, it, like reflashing controllers. They're using it for media systems, multimedia, to take data from the internet like 
Spotify or things like that and display and display information. Even newer cars have sophisticated crash avoidance systems that require active sensors throughout the vehicle. And that requires even more data available through the automotive Ethernet. Um, some of the new cars that are going to be coming out have uh, LiDAR. LiDAR stands for light detection and ranging, and it's used to measure distances. Say, how far away is that car ahead of you? And LiDAR is really, it's got a lot of data. Um, CAN bus just couldn't handle the amount of data that's coming through that. Audio video data is going through there. Um, just things that need more bandwidth. That CAN bus has a lot of limitations with, with regard to bandwidth, but it does really good for real time, but really bad for bandwidth. And so for bandwidth intensive applications, uh, Ethernet really solves that problem. Interesting side topic. To reduce fuel consumption, the automotive industry has been trying to reduce the overall weight of the car. Given that we are adding Ethernet systems to every car, that's actually a substantial amount of weight that just goes for cabling cabling in any car. To some degree, CAN bus, or even more than one CAN bus, does cut down on the amount of cabling required. Yeah, the CAN bus is, it's the best, I mean, just like a network in your in your office, it's the best way to get, you know, data from one to the other. Because if your display wants to s display the vehicle speed, right, the only way to really get that information without, without, having a wire running directly from the display to a sensor at the wheel or at some motor that's outputted to the wheel is to get it from a network that where that controller is already set sensing the value. So why not share it? And, and yeah, so they'll connect these things to the, to the CAN bus. So you're probably wondering why there isn't one holistic operating system for every car. Well, that's not how the computerization of automobiles came about. So how did we get to not having an operating system? Well, I yes. mean, some of them do have operating systems. So it's really in the beginning, like operating systems take a lot of memory, resources, and they, they're slow. Cars are life-critical systems. Decisions need to be made in nanoseconds. You tap on the brake, you expect a response instantaneously. Having a full-on operating system, it lacks the speed you can get with a CAN bus. I mean, they're way too slow to fire an engine. You can't run an operating system. If you're running like even a, a real-time Linux, you probably couldn't do a very good job of, of activating the cylinders on your, on your engine controller. So even an operating system, it has its limitations. And so why even bother? You know, if, if you can't do the application because of the limitation, why even bother with an operating system in that situation? So, so forego an operating system, run your application directly on the controller, and um, and just run it in C, right? Like there's no reason to have an operating system except for building applications on top of it that manage resources. And like, if you're building everything like it's monolithic, it's really not as important of a, of a requirement. That's not to say the average car is ancient and unchanging. Given the efficiency of a CAN bus, you're starting to see more and more CAN buses layered on top of each other. I recently saw a future specification for a vehicle that included 8080 CAN buses. 80, which was, it was sort of like the, this is everything possible, not necessarily what will be there, but this is everything. If, if we were to make a vehicle and we put everything on it, which we won't, you know, this is like our, our roadmap we can select and choose, but that one had 80 um, CAN buses on it. So what they're doing is they're moving away from CAN bus being like the central um, way that controllers will communicate 
and it's more of they're kind of pushing it to the edges they're kind of making the can bus the control between like the the thing that needs the control to happen and the actual controller that's performing the function so that it still has some real-time aspects of it while allowing ethernet automotive ethernet as a backbone so you can have like a gigabit backbone and like 100 megabit like branches uh to a can bus it's it's quite interesting what the concept the new concepts are um, that they're coming up Since 1996, all U.S. cars have been federally mandated to have an onboard diagnostics port designed to give auto mechanics, not just dealerships, access to the data systems within the cars. Unfortunately, that same port might also allow a cybercriminal access as well. Access to the CAN bus through the OBD2, or Onboard Diagnostics Port 2, located near or around the steering column, that means attacks such as these require someone physically be inside the vehicle. A mechanic, a valet, someone you know. So, could someone outside the vehicle gain access to the OBD2 port or the ECUs? Well, the jury's still out on that. A group of researchers decided to see whether the adversary could take over a car's central computer system was shocked to learn the ease with which they could disrupt the whole system. That said, I should stress that the risk to your car and my car remains relatively low. Researcher Stefan Savage from the University of California, San Diego, said the real concern is the wireless sensors on newer cars. In 2000, when low-pressure Firestone tires were causing accidents in Fords, Congress enacted a Transportation Recall Enhancement Accountability and Documentation Act, which led to the creation of the TPMS wireless sensors to warn of low tire pressure. Indeed, the separate research project used Tire Pressure Monitoring System, TPMS, to gain access to the car's ECU. The researchers used the wireless sensors to control low-pressure warning lights on the dashboard of a car traveling at highway speeds more than 100 feet away. These wireless tire pressure monitors don't use authentication, nor do they validate the input of new data, so rewriting is possible. What the researchers did trigger a tire pressure warning system may not sound like a lot, but manufacturers are building more and more wireless systems into their cars, and increasingly researchers are sounding the warning about ultimate consequences. Fortunately, the auto industry seems to be listening. So where does that leave us? I see two alternatives. The first is to recognize that the digital world will be one of ever-expanding features and options, of ever-faster product releases, of ever-increasing complexity, and of ever-decreasing security. This is the world we have today, and we can decide to embrace it knowingly. The other choice is to slow down, and to simplify, and to try to add security wherever possible. Customers, they're not going to demand this. The issues are too complex for them to understand. So maybe a consumer advocacy group is required. I can easily imagine an FDA-like organization for automotive, but that could take a decade to approve all the standards necessary to make our cars safe. Unfortunately, there are no easy fixes here. We must take the long view. We need to start by understanding the underlying issues first. Then we must start advocating for consumer regulations that will impact us in the future. 
The best scenario would be for all hardware manufacturers to use authentication for software updates and encryption when communicating between systems. Until such time, it's caveat emptor. Original research for this podcast came from my book, When Gadgets Betray Us, which is available on Amazon. I'd also like to thank, once again, Martin Herfert and Robert Leal for their original interviews on The Hacker Mind. My point here is to raise questions about increasing convenience brought on by technology. Hopefully these discussions, and others like it, will foster an environment where we can collectively work to improve the security of our vehicles and make things more convenient and safer for both the driver and the passenger. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. I don't want you to miss out. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. For The Hacker Mine, I'm Robert Vimosi.